You can open to Proverbs chapter 9. I wonder how you would measure a great year. For most of us, 2020 and 2021, we wouldn't label as some of our better years. They've become the butt of many jokes and many different memes. And I don't want to make light of the fact that for some of you, those were truly difficult, difficult years. One man in our church, though, said this to me recently. He said, 2021 was the best year of my life. I thought, really? 2021? You might be the only person I've heard say that. And he said, 2021 was the best year of my life because I've grown more in Christ this year than I have in any other year. And that's wisdom. Perhaps you would consider, of course, we're dependent on God's grace to will and to work in us, but perhaps you would strive after that goal in this year. Not measured, a great year, not measured by your bank account, not measured by the amount of trips you get to take, not measured by your relative comfort increasing or decreasing, not measured by the amount of goods you're able to add or the amount of cars you're able to buy, but measured by conformity to Christ. Or to put it in the language of the book of Proverbs, to put it in the language of Proverbs 9, maybe we might strive after the fear of the Lord, that we might grow in wisdom, that we might learn to live God's way in God's world for God's glory. We began Proverbs chapter 9 last week. If you weren't able to be here, I'll try to catch you up as quickly as I can. I really would encourage you to to take time to maybe go to the website if you weren't able to be here and listen to that because I'm not going to be able to capture all of it as succinctly as I would like. But we discovered that Proverbs chapter 9 is broken down into three sections of six verses each. And what we did is we took sort of the bracket of, of the passage. We looked at the first six verses and the last six verses. And the reason we did that is because those two sections describe these invitations to these two different parties. They're compared and they're contrasted. And I just felt like if we, if we look at those two together, it would help us to see the way that these compare and contrast. One of the parties is thrown by a lady named Wisdom. She's a wonderfully classy lady who is throwing a beautiful party in her wonderful home. She has slaughtered her beasts. She has mixed her wine, and she has sent out her maidens, the text says, to call from the heights of the city, come in here, come to my party. Here's her call in verses 4 through 7. Whoever is simple, let him turn in here. To him who lacks sense, she says, come, eat of my bread and drink of the wine I have mixed. Leave your simple ways and live, and walk in the way of insight. That's the invitation to Lady Wisdom's party. There's another woman calling out. She doesn't live in a seven-pillared home. She doesn't have maidens to send out. She's sitting on her front porch, screaming at you as you walk by. Her name is Folly. And the text says that she's boisterous and loud. We might use the word annoying there. She doesn't have a nice home. She doesn't have maidens. She sits on her front porch and she yells. But her invitation is is very, very similar. It's to the same audience. Let him who is simple turn in here. She says, come to my party. But she doesn't have a slaughtered beast. She doesn't have mixed wine. 
Instead, woman folly, she says she has bread and water. But she knows how to entice you and me. And she knows how, how to make this, this little meager meal that she has to offer. She knows how to make it enticing. This is, this is stolen water, bread eaten in secret. It's, it's pleasant. It's this appeal to that which is forbidden. And our flesh oftentimes goes after that which is forbidden. Lady Wisdom, then, we, we concluded, is the personification of, Uh, the the picture, the metaphor of God's wisdom that he offers to all of those who humbly come to him through the work of Jesus Christ because in Christ are hidden all the riches of wisdom and knowledge. And and then woman folly is the, the gods of this world, the idols of this world that are calling out and they're wooing you to give yourself over to them, to reject the Lord, to live your way in your world for your glory. But we ended the text by reminding ourselves that it's a, it's a trap. It's not a party at all. It's a funeral. It's a banquet in the grave. So by contrasting these two parties, God is calling us to choose wisdom, to choose to find wisdom in Him and in Him alone, to choose life, turn in here and live, or serve foolishness and sin and die. Refuse the call of woman folly that appeals to the lusts of the flesh. So our text falls right in the middle of those two invitations. And what the author does, he strips away sort of the metaphorical language. He kind of comes back to it there towards the end, but strips away the metaphorical language and, and speaks plainly to us about the differences between wisdom and folly. God, in his word to us this morning, sketches in the the opposing sides, wisdom and foolishness. And in this we see, first, wisdom's nature. There in the first few verses there, seven, in the beginning of verse nine. Whoever corrects a scoffer gets himself abuse, and he who reproves a wicked man incurs injury. Do not reprove a, a scoffer, or he will hate you. Reprove a wise man, and he will love you. Give instruction to a wise man, and he will be still wiser. Teach a righteous man, and he will increase in learning. One of the hard things about walking in wisdom is that we are surrounded by those who are content to be heading in the opposite direction, and they are encouraging others, as we are encouraging others to walk in wisdom, they are encouraging others to walk in foolishness. That's why we hear uh, passages like Proverbs chapter 4, where Solomon is pleading, do not enter the path of the wicked, and do not walk in the way of evil. Avoid it. Do not go on it. Turn from it. Do not walk down the path of evil because it's an invitation that's available to us. And one of the persons on this path that's calling out and trying to convince people to walk the path of wickedness is a person called the scoffer. He's mentioned three times in in our text this morning in verse 7, verse 8, and you'll see there uh, in verse 12, he shows back up. The scoffer in the book of Proverbs is the one who refuses to hear wisdom. He refuses to accept God's will and God's word and to live according to it. The scoffer insists on his way. He he even scoffs at those 
hence the word scoffer, at those who are trying to walk in wisdom. He's not content just to do things his way. He insists you do it as well, or you receive, the text says, abuse. He chooses to ridicule those who would choose lady wisdom over woman folly. And this can be a powerful voice. Nobody wants to be, you know that word abuse there. It could be physical abuse, but also in the book of Proverbs, words can wound you, they can stab you, they can harm you. So it could also just be insults and mockery there. And nobody wants to be mocked or ridiculed. So this can be a powerful voice. The scoffer might make us question whether we've given our whole lives over to something that should be laughed at. Should we, should we be giving ourselves to the Lord and to Christ when the scoffer says that's something to be mocked for and to be insulted for? So what God does for us in his kindness, much like woman folly, he unmasks the scoffer for us. He shows us the true colors of the mocker so you're not enticed to go down the path of wickedness. And we can see then the beauty of God's wisdom. And look how he unmasks the scoffer there in verse 7. Whoever corrects a scoffer gets himself abuse, and he who reproves a wicked man incurs injury. If you try to correct someone who is a scoffer, you incur abuse and injury. The defining characteristic of a scoffer is that he doesn't hear instruction, he doesn't hear wisdom, he doesn't hear counsel, he doesn't hear reproof. Instead, If you were to make an attempt at that, you incur injury and abuse. You know, when I was first became a Christian in my later teenage years, some friends invited me with a different church to go out to San Francisco and do some evangelism there and some outreach among the homeless population there in San Francisco, which is quite large. And one of the days we were coming out of this building in which we'd been serving, and this guy, I'm not, I'm not exactly sure how he knew what we were there for, what we were doing, but he gets right in our face, and he's clapping, and he's mocking, and he's saying, oh, look at me, real sarcastically. I'm a Christian, and I'm, I'm going to be serving people in San Francisco. Good for me. And he, he's just mocking us, and he's ridiculing us for nothing other than being there trying to serve Christ. And then he Told, no uncertain terms, told us to get out of that area. Now, we weren't trying to correct him, but he was a, a scoffer in that sense. He was scoffing not only at us, but he was scoffing at the very fact of someone being a Christian and serving Christ with their life. He was insulting and mocking and abusing with his very words. So the scoffer, he mocks. He doesn't hear instruction. He doesn't hear correction, reproof, or counsel. In fact, in the beginning of verse 8 there, the scoffer will hate you if you reprove him or her. In fact, there's even a time where it's not even worth it to try to offer correction or reproof to a scoffer. The text says, do not reprove, do not rebuke a mocker. I think this is similar to Jesus' words in Matthew chapter 7 where he says, don't cast your pearls before swine because they'll trample it underfoot. So there's times and instances where it's not even wise to speak. Now this isn't an absolute prohibition against trying to speak counsel or wisdom. 
to those who are unlikely to receive it. There's some, some wisdom, there's some times where it's good for you to speak. I'm reminded of Proverbs chapter 26, verses 4 and 5. that says, Do not answer a fool according to his folly, or you yourself will be just like him. But what does the next verse say? Answer a fool according to his folly, or he will be wise in his own eyes. Do not answer a fool. Answer a fool. Well, the whole point of the book of Proverbs is it's the genre of wisdom. It's not this 100% prohibition or, or command. It's, there's times where it's wise to speak, and there's times where it's unwise to speak. It takes some discernment on our part to know, should I say something to this guy, or am I just going to re- receive rebuke and insult? These verses are placed back to back for a reason. Sometimes I should not say anything to a fool. Like maybe if I don't even know the guy and he's on social media and I'll never see him and I'll never meet him. But there are times where it is appropriate to rebuke or to correct a fool. And again, we said last week, these are moral categories. The fool says in his heart there is no God. The fool spurns God's word and God's wisdom. These aren't intellectual categories. We said last week, these are not the dummies and the intellects. These are the ones who say in their heart there is no God and the ones who fear God, as we'll see in a moment. The scoffer doesn't hear correction. He doesn't hear rebuke, but it's not so with the wise person. Again, what's God up to? He's demonstrating this is what wisdom looks like. This is what the fool looks like. The fool mocks, and he doesn't hear counsel. Not so with the wise person. Look there at the second half of verse 8. Reprove a wise man, and he will love you. If you offer genuine reproof to a wise person, he will love you. The scoffer rejects not only your message, but he rejects you. And the wise person, when he receives wise counsel, he not, or, or correction, or reproof, or rebuke even, not only receives correction, but he receives you, understanding that this is, this is good, that you have said this wisdom to me, or that you've rebuked me in this way. So one of the, one of the obvious applications for us this morning is, is this question, are you then teachable? Are you willing to hear correction? Or, and I ask this to myself as well, do you know better at all times than those around you? You know, maybe this isn't the area of God's wisdom, but just to, just to gauge your heart, if you're at work and your supervisor tells you to do something, do you scoff at that or do you hear the instruction of somebody that's over you? Or how have you responded in the past to, to, a, to an elder who maybe approaches you or even a brother or sister in Christ who approaches you and says, hey, you know, we've seen this in you and, and listen, I know my own heart and I see it in my own heart and so can, can we talk about this? We might be pressing into a blind spot here. How have you responded to some error or blind spot that has been pointed out in your life? You see, the scoffer will go behind that person's back and say all kinds of wicked and hurtful things about the very person that tried to, who, who probably had to work themselves up and pray and ask God for the courage to come and say something to that person. They will go behind them and insult them and tear them down and hurt them with their words. But the wise person hears counsel. The wise person hears reproof. 
He will trust that his brother or sister has their best interests at heart. He will pray, perhaps, about the correction. You know, if somebody says, you know, hey, I've noticed this in you and you don't see it, you might just say, you know what, I, I, I don't see it. I'm going to pray and I'm going to ask God for wisdom here. I'm going to pray and ask God for, for eyes to see. Go home and pray about the correction that you may receive. And the wise person confesses any sin that the Lord reveals in his heart and any foolishness where it is revealed. Now, if you're a, a child this morning in the service, listen to me for a moment. You see, the book of Proverbs begins with a dad writing to his son to love God, to fear God, and therefore find wisdom and to treasure God's word, God's will, God's wisdom above anything and everything. As you read the book of Proverbs, it's a dad trying to convince his son to love God and to walk in wisdom. And so it's hard for us, if we're going to apply this text, it's hard for us to ignore that context of a dad speaking to his son. And so I want you to know that God has put parents in your life. He has put authority over you to teach you and to lead you and, and really to teach you and lead you to know and to love God. And yes, at times even to discipline you. And so the question for, for the kids in the room this morning is that are, are you willing to hear correction? Are you willing to hear instruction? Are you willing to trust that God has put authority over you and that you honor and please God when you hear them and you listen to them? If you want to be wise, and you should, you should want to be wise, if you want to be wise, trust the Lord and trust that he has put authority over you to teach you and to train you and that you don't always, you, you, you don't always know what's best in every situation. Neither do I. Neither do I. Chapter 9 is actually, I'm still talking to the, the kids here, but you parents can tune in. And, but chapter 9 is the end of a fir, the first big section of the book of Proverbs. And, and interestingly enough, when a new section starts, which starts in chapter 10, verse 1, look at, look at that. If you have your Bible open, look there in chapter 10, verse 1. The Proverbs of Solomon, a wise son makes a glad father, but a foolish son is a sorrow to his mother. To live in a, in a wise way than is to, to come to God through Jesus Christ and to live underneath his ultimate authority and to trust him, to live and to speak in a way that announces to everyone that you know and love God. To love the God of the Bible who has sent his son Jesus into this world to die on the cross for your sins. And, and adults, if we broaden that application a little bit, we might say this. We might say that, that for the older saints in the room, and I'll let you draw that demarcation line, for the older saints in the, in the room, those of you particularly who have been following Christ a long time, you, you've, you've grown in the wisdom of the Lord, you are, you are a source of wisdom for our church, and you also then have a responsibility to mentor and pass along God's word and God's wisdom to the next generation. You see, in the pastoral epistles, 1st, 2nd Timothy, Titus, you know, they all start with a T, so that's, that's the easy way to remember. Paul assumes, he simply assumes that older and younger will be in the same church. He, he, he assumes that the older and younger generation will be worshiping together in the same church. 
A church without young people has uh, no one to bring up, no one to share your wisdom with, and a church without old people cannot obey the command for the older generation, the older men to teach the younger men and the older women to teach the younger women. So if you older saints, I would encourage you to take up the responsibility of investing in, in young people and sharing what God has taught you over your 40, 50 years of following Christ. At the same time, then, if we're thinking about the pastorals for a moment, at the same time, Paul assumes that it's possible for a young person to be an example to others, even those who are older than them, in speech and in conduct. So when I talk to, to the older saints, it's not that we sit the young people down and say, Shh, be quiet and listen. I almost said, never mind. <laughs> be quiet and listen. I'm older than you. Right? There's, there's, a, there's a bit of a mutual sharing of wisdom and encouragement to love and to, to know God. And so what's it going to take? What's it going to take at a church like ours for, for young and old to worship together and to love one another, to be provoking one another to serve Christ and to walk in His wisdom? Here, here's what it takes, and it's demonstrated in the text. It takes humility. The wise person hears because he's humble. The scoffer doesn't hear because he's not humble. Wise people are humble people. Where you find true humility, you will find wisdom. Because a wise person recognizes that they need to grow and they don't have it all figured out and they need the church to come alongside them and spur them on to love and good works and that they then have a responsibility to do the same because the person next to them doesn't have it all figured out either. The wise woman knows that she needs the counsel of others and she's willing to hear it. And so while the scoffer rejects counsel and spirals down into more and more foolishness, the wise person gladly receives counsel and becomes still wiser. That makes sense. Because the wise person is willing to receive what he's being told. We might define humility as knowing who you are in light of who God is. Knowing who you are in light of who God is. Sometimes we think humility is just saying, I'm bad at everything, I'm not smart, I'm, I'm terrible at this. That, that's not true humility. That's, in a weird way, putting the spotlight back on yourself. True humility is knowing who you are in light of who God is. It's recognizing that you are dependent on Him as your Creator because He is Creator and you are creation. So it's knowing that that's who you are in light of a God who is creator and is in no way dependent on anyone or anything. So then it makes sense that humility leads us to wisdom and that wisdom begins with a proper understanding of who the Lord is. A proper disposition towards the Lord. And that's what we see in verse 10. Wisdom's foundation in verse 10. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom and the knowledge of the Holy One is insight. Now this is, this is the banner of the book of Proverbs. This is the idea that was introduced in chapter 1, verse 7, in the introduction of the book. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Knowledge and wisdom there are used very, very similarly. Fools despise wisdom and instruction, the text says. So, so the beginning of wisdom is the fear of the Lord. And that, that beginning there 
It's not like a starting line of a race. We, we might think that initially, right? The beginning, where you begin the race here, and you run your race, and you end at the finish line. You end as far away from the beginning as you possibly can, as quick as you can. But the beginning here is not leaving behind the fear of the Lord because it's sort of introductory and perfunctory. It doesn't mean that. It means something more like the foundation. The very foundation on which wisdom comes and is built is the fear of the Lord. So instead of a starting line of a race, you might think of the corner pieces of a 5,000-piece puzzle. You have no hope of putting the puzzle together and getting it all figured out and moving this jumbled mess into something that is a beautiful picture until you have those corner pieces in the right place. Then you can begin to build off of this corner piece and put the pieces of the puzzle together. The fear of the Lord is the foundation. It's, it's the beginning. It's the corner piece to wisdom. So as we look at Chapter 9, verse 10, we see then that it's the fear of the Lord that is this beginning, this foundation. Many of you are aware of this. Some, some of you may not be, but when you see that word Lord there in verse 10, and you see the big L capitalized, and then you see the, it's, it's not lowercase, but it's smaller, uppercase, smaller, O-R-D, then this is Yahweh. This is the name that God reveals himself in Exodus chapter 3. We first learn about God's name there when Moses asked, Who should I say is sending me? And the Lord says, Tell him, Yahweh has sent you, the God of Abraham, the God of Jacob. So wisdom then is built up, is, is founded on knowing who God is as he has revealed himself to us. Apart from the Lord, then, apart from Him, there is no wisdom. Again, these aren't intellectual categories. That doesn't mean there can't be really smart people and they can't make helpful observations about life or science or philosophy. It's that real wisdom, true wisdom, is bound up in knowing God through Jesus Christ. God is the treasure chest. Christ specifically is hidden in him, and you cannot attain it apart from him because the beginning of wisdom is the fear of the Lord. So wisdom's not simply a matter of learning a few things. It's not totally disconnected from knowing what's true about God, but it goes beyond intellect. It's not simply a matter of learning some principles and applying them sort of mechanically to your life. Why? Because you can only behave in true wisdom if you know Christ. All right, you know, our sin, our rejection of God and His wisdom, our choosing to live our way in our world for our glory, it has separated us from the God of all wisdom who is creator and we are creation. We rebelled against Him, made ourselves His enemy, and we were the rightful recipients, we should have been, of His judgment to us. But God's Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, has come into this world to rescue fools like me who said in my heart, there is no God, and I lived as if God does not exist. I lived like he had no authority over my life, that his will had no uh, power over me, like he has no reason 
or ability to tell me what to do or how to live. But Christ has come to this world, perfectly lived. He perfectly obeyed the Father at all times. And the, uh, the Bible says that he bore our sins in his body. That he took our sins upon himself on that cross. And he rose victoriously from the grave so that all those who turn from their sin and they trust in the Lord Jesus Christ might be declared righteous might be reconciled, brought back to God, and have access then to all of his wisdom. You can't live God's way and God's world for God's glory apart from being united to Christ through faith. Wisdom is found in relationship with God, and a relationship with God is only available through the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus himself said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes unto the Father except through me. There is no true wisdom outside of him. Seeking to become wise, they became fools, Paul says. When you seek to become wise apart from God, you can can be really smart, but ultimately you become a fool. When a person suppresses the truth that God has made evident to them, the Bible says that their thinking becomes futile, it becomes darkened. In our sin, we are incapable of seeing Clearly, we do not interpret the world around us according to God and according to His Word. And so He's revealed Himself to us, not only in creation, but in in His own words, in the Bible. Isn't that what happened to Adam and Eve? Seeking to become wise, they became fools. They were promised knowledge. The serpent said, oh, you you won't die. Just do this, and you'll get all this knowledge of good and evil. And sin flooded this world because of their rebellion against God. Seeking to become wise, they became fools. They sought wisdom apart from God and His revealed will. And that only results in foolishness. To know God, then, is to fear God. The proper disposition. God has revealed Himself to us. The proper disposition towards the Lord the one on which wisdom is built is fear. Fear. If you were here during Bible Hour when we were talking through fear of man, we we spent some time in the fear of the Lord. And you might remember uh, an illustration I used, but I think it's helpful of this July 4th uh, parade where they do that flyover with the B-51 or something. What is it? B-1 bomber? And, you know, I wasn't here. Brock was preaching, but I listened to the recording, and he just, like, stopped preaching for a minute. This is maybe, maybe a silly example, but I'm, I'm down there on the corner, and the B-1 bomber flies over, and, and they get low. I mean, low, low. It's shaking you. You can feel it in your chest. But you know what? What, what I felt was a sense of fear, but not a sense of danger. Because when I looked up, I said, you know what, I'm glad to be an American. I'm glad if somebody fights us, that thing and that guy flying that thing is on my team. He's for me, so I'm not afraid he's going to dive bomb Custer and start dropping his bombs because he's for me. The danger has been removed. All I see is the power and the ability that's wrapped up in that B-1 bomber. I don't see my own destruction in that. And that's what the fear of the Lord is. 
If you've come to Christ, the danger has been removed in the sense of judgment. It's been taken away. But you still see the Lord in all of his glory and all of his perfection, all of his wisdom, all of his power. And you tremble before him. The gospel doesn't turn God into some kind of teddy bear. We still see who he is and what he's like and that he's creator and I am creation and we tremble before him. We recognize that we are subservient to him, that we are totally dependent on him for our next breath. C.S. Lewis said, said it this way, In God you come up against something which, in every, which is in every respect immeasurably superior to yourself. Unless you know God is that, you do not know God at all. As long as you are proud, you cannot know God. A proud man is always looking down on things and people, and of course, as long as you are looking down, you cannot see something that is above you. We've come up against something immeasurably superior to us in God. So we fear. But we draw near to him, recognizing that in Christ, the danger of judgment has been wiped away. See, that word fear, it has a range of meanings. It can mean something like respect, and it can mean something like sheer and utter terror. The fear of the, the, fear of the Lord in Proverbs 9.10 is what remains when the terror has been taken out. So I always say the fear of the Lord is something in between respect and terror. Whatever, whatever that word is in the middle there. A holy reverence, so to speak. One quick way to test yourself. Do, do I fear the Lord? How do I know if I fear the Lord? Well, we've talked about humility. That would be one way. Another way is given to us in Proverbs chapter 8, verse 13, where, again, Lady Wisdom is speaking there. The fear of the Lord is to hate evil. If you fear God, you will, you, you will find yourself growing in this. You will begin to love what God loves and hate what God hates. The fear of the Lord is to hate evil because you fear the one who hates evil. The fool, on the other hand, gives hearty approval. He not only participates in evil, but gives hearty approval to those who are participating in evil. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and the knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. You see, the logic of the book of Proverbs is that God is creator. So if you want to walk according to his will, if you want to know how to navigate the world that he, is, he has made, you must know him. You must know the Holy One who has created this world and infused it with his wisdom. And so to know God, this is a relationship that's then dependent on revelation. I must know God and what he is like if I am to know wisdom and understanding. And thankfully, God has revealed himself in all kinds of ways, in a multitude of ways, in creation, and in Christ, in our conscience. But one we should think about quickly and, and apply it is, is that he's revealed himself in his word to us, the Bible. If you want to grow in Christ, if you want to know God, if you want to understand, grow in understanding the Holy One, you will never attain it apart from God's word given to you. And so there's no better time than, than this week, than today, to, to begin reading your Bible regularly. Many of you are in that habit and you've seen the fruit of that habit. 
You know, I had these last week, but I forgot to point it out. So now you're like nine days behind. But if you want a Bible reading calendar, it's okay. It's a five-day-a-week plan. So those other two days, you can either dive into something um, more specific, slow down a little bit, or you can uh, catch up on these nine days there. But, you know, the Bible doesn't command us to, to, to do that, but for many of you, it's a worthy goal. For others, if, if you're just not a good reader, if you're a child, you know, I would encourage you to just be in the Bible every day. Read God's Word. If you want to grow in wisdom, you have to be in the Bible. You have to read God's Word. So we've seen that wisdom is characterized by a humility, a humble disposition. We found that wisdom is only found in right relationship with God through the finished work of our Lord Jesus Christ And then lastly, we see that wisdom comes with a reward. Look there in verses 11 and 12. For by me your days will be multiplied, and years will be added to your life. If you are wise, you are wise for yourself. If you scoff, you alone will bear it. Those Bible reading plans are in the lobby, by the way. I just realized I told you to get one, didn't tell you where it is. The reward for wisdom is life. Turn in here, leave your simple ways, and live. Here in verse 11, the the, the voice of Lady Wisdom sort of intrudes back into the passage. Partake of me and live. She offers multiplied days and a long life for finding wisdom. And there is a sense, a a very practical sense in which There's a protection from danger when we walk in wisdom. Now, this isn't a a promise, per se, the way we would understand a promise. Some very wise people have died quite young. But this is a general principle given to us in the wisdom literature of Proverbs and Psalms and others. Really, even... Well, never mind, I'll go there in a second. One way to illustrate this is to consider Solomon's wisdom in chapter 1 when he said, don't run with those who are quick to do violence. Because you know what? If you run with those who are quick to do violence, you know what you do? You set your own trap. You're going to fall in that trap. Violence is going to fall on you. If you walk in foolishness, your life might get cut short. The... Exact reference escapes me, but the friend of sinners will suffer harm. You run with the fools. You, you, you might suffer the same consequences that they suffer. So walking in wisdom can cause a person to live longer. If I tell my kids not to play in the street, when cars are zooming by, they will live a longer life. But there's more going on in this passage. There's more to it than, you know what, I'm going to obey God so that I can live a few more extra days. There's more going on in this passage. This is the language of covenant. This is more precisely the language of the covenant that God has made with Israel. In Deuteronomy 32, it says, And when Moses had finished speaking all these words to all Israel, he said to them, Take to heart all the words by which I am warning you today, that you may command them to your children, that they may be careful to do all the words of this law. For it is no empty word for you, but your very life. And by this word you shall live long in the land that you are going over the Jordan to possess. 
In the old covenant, obedience to God led to blessings from God, and, and then in turn, disobedience to God by Israel resulted in curses. If they obeyed, they lived full lives, long lives in the promised land. If they rebelled against God, the curses fell, and another nation would come in and overthrow them and take them from the land. They would receive the curses of the covenant. And over and over in the Old Testament, as you read it, they're driven from the land, and they are possessed by other nations. They are taken captive by their enemies. They could not keep the covenant. They couldn't obey God and earn their right to remain in the promised land and to receive all the blessings of the promised land. So Christ comes in the New Testament with a new covenant and he adds eternal dimensions to this promise in chapter 9, verse 11. He has taken the curse of disobedience so that you might receive all the blessings of the obedience that he earned for you by his very own righteousness. You are treated as if you perfectly obeyed the law and kept the covenant, and you receive the blessings that the Son has earned for you when you come to Jesus Christ. And the life that he offers is eternal life with God in his presence. So the invitation of Lady Wisdom to come and to live, it's the invitation to know God and to receive eternal life. To live forever, not just a few more days on this earth, but to live forever with God. John 5, 24, Jesus says, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. To hear and to believe Christ is to live, to receive eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. There's much on the line in these two invitations, lady wisdom and woman folly. It's eternal life or it's eternal death. The point of verse 12 then is that wisdom rewards the wise, but the fool suffers alone. The ESV translates verse 12 literally, if you are wise, you are wise for yourself. That's kind of hard for us to grasp and understand. I think the idea is that wisdom rewards the wise. You are rewarded when you find wisdom in Christ. If you want to paraphrase verse 12, you might say it this way, your wisdom will reward you. Find wisdom, find a reward. Alternatively, the scoffer bears the consequences and the responsibilities for his sin. Alone. For his sin. We each bear personal responsibility for choosing then sin or righteousness, eternal life or eternal death. We bear responsibility and thus we bear either the consequences or the reward. The choices are, are laid out for us. They're clear in Proverbs chapter 9. The invitations have gone out from the height of the city. He who is simple, let him turn in here. Which, which will you choose? Which will you choose? Wisdom or folly? God's way of fear and humility or the scoffer's way of pride and insistence? The call of this text is it, it, it's unmasking the ugliness of foolishness and sin. Choose wisdom. And for those of us who are in Christ this morning, my prayer for us is that we would do by God's grace and that we would be what the church in Acts 9 is said to be, 
They are continually walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit. May God give us the grace as a body and as individual believers to continually walk in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit. Let's pray. Lord, you are a good God and you are a kind God in that you have revealed yourself. You have sent your son Jesus into this world who is the exact representation of your nature, your very image as God in the flesh. Lord, may we become more wise. May we fear your holy name, submit to you and to your word, to love you with our whole heart, to rejoice in the gospel. Lord, may you comfort us with the Holy Spirit and may we continually walk in the fear of who you are and what you've done. In Jesus' name, amen.